Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited that you came across this message. The sermon you're about to listen to is from our series, This is 20. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. You know, we say all the time that before we are anything else, Hope Church is a family. The list is very short of people who have relocated their lives to plant a church in a different context and culture and seen God move in such a way that lives were changed, churches were planted, and nations were impacted. to believe, but 20 years ago this month, Hope Church launched. We had our first public worship service. We'll be celebrating that again next weekend, the last weekend of September. But the first church launch took place a lot longer than 20 years ago. As a matter of fact, 2,000 years ago in a city called Jerusalem, we learn about the launch of the very first church in this movement that we call Christianity. They launched in Jerusalem, and it was really a church that was launched as a part of a movement of God that was taking place. This first church, when they had their first public worship service, you can read about it in Acts chapter 2, at their very first public worship gathering, 3,000 people trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, I've been around church planning for the last 20 years. I don't know how you measure successful church planning, but I'm telling you, if 3,000 people get saved on the first Sunday, that's a pretty good church launch. Amen? I mean, Sunday night, can you imagine if that happened today, we'd all get t-shirts printed, right? I was there when the 3,000 got saved. 3,000 people on Sunday number one. Now, if that's not a significant enough launch, by the time you get to Acts chapter four, they're coming back for their second public worship gathering when the gospel is proclaimed again. And on Sunday number two, you think it's gotta be a letdown after Sunday number one, right? On Sunday number two, so many people trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that they can only count the men. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter four that there were five thousand men that trusted Jesus Christ on Sunday number two. So, so get this, we're like two Sundays into a brand new church launch and there's somewhere between 10 and 20,000 new believers running around. Would you be excited to be a part of a church launch like that? Amen. That'd be a lot of fun, right? Well, if that's not enough, the history of this early church tells us that within six months in the city of Jerusalem, 100,000 people 
had come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I want to give you some kind of a box to put that in. We're sitting right now in the zip code 89183. Just south of us is 89052. Those two zip codes combined, if you did a total number of everybody that lives in 89183 and 89052, you're at about 100,000 people. Could you imagine if we could say six months from now, everybody in 89183 and everybody in 89052 have become followers of Jesus Christ? Would you be excited about something like that? That's what happened. We've read it so many times in the book of Acts that we kind of read over these numbers and the magnitude of what's taking place, and we don't even let it sink in with what really happened. The early church, when it launched in Jerusalem, saw explosive growth as people came to know Jesus Christ all over Jerusalem. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is not containable. It didn't just stay in Jerusalem. The gospel began to spread outside of Jerusalem. And within a few years, historians and scholars tell us that the gospel had reached their region of the world. Which, to put that in our vernacular today, that would be like saying today that over the next decade, most of the western United States have become believers in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know the stats or not, but you can drop down in every major city in the west... From Seattle all the way down to San Diego, as far west as Denver, down into Phoenix. Every major city in the western United States, and there's between 92 and 95% lostness. Meaning this, in every major city in the western United States, almost 9 out of every 10 people do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. What if a decade from now we could say, man, most of the people in the western United States have been exposed to the gospel and many of them have become followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we're reading about in the book of Acts. The Bible and historians tell us and scholars, theologians, that within 40 years of the opening pages of the book of Acts, the gospel had reached every corner of the known world. Did you know if that happened in our lifetime, in our generation, we could literally finish the mission of the gospel? Talk about impact. As you and I sit here this weekend, we're a part of a movement called Christianity that touches the world. There are Christians now all over the world. Depending on which stat you look at, somewhere between 1 billion and 2 billion, depending on which you count in the category, but somewhere between 1 billion and 2 billion professing. I'm not saying they're all genuine. I'm just saying between 1 and 2 billion professing Christians today on planet Earth, and every single one of those men and women trace their faith back to this very first church that launched in Jerusalem just over 2,000 years ago. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a movement like that. If we're not careful, we get so caught up in the American dream and trying to make more than everybody else has and store up more than everybody else has and accumulate more. I was driving by. I was out of town for a couple months on sabbatical, got back, and there's like new storage unit buildings. It feels like everywhere. Like, is that like an American thing or what? We have to build buildings to store the stuff we can't keep in the houses that we have, right? 
If we're not careful, we can get so caught up in it. But listen, God has invited us into something, a movement that is so much bigger than that. And it is a movement that is literally turning the world upside down. And when we understand what happened among these people in the early church, it really raises a question. I don't know if you think like this, but here's the question in my mind. What was it about them? That enabled them to be so used of God. I mean, think about it. Hope Church, uh, you don't realize this because you're a part of Hope Church. But outside of Hope Church, as I travel across the country and around the world and get to teach and train pastors. I don't know if you know this, but you're kind of a big deal. Like church planting in the West to see what we've seen happen in 20 years is a pretty big story. But think about it. It's taken us 20 years to do what they did in the first two Sundays. Like it pales in comparison. What was it about them? Was it that they were just super great leaders? Not if you read the story of these people that made up the early church. As a matter of fact, if you were picking teams, you probably wouldn't have picked any of these people to be on the team. They weren't super creative. They didn't have much influence. They were not people of wealth. Most of them had no education. What was it about them? I love my my buddy J.D. Greer, pastor in North Carolina. Here's what he says about this group of people. Never has a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. If you got your Bible, I want you to open it to Acts chapter 4. That narrative, that story that I've just told you about the explosion of this early church. I want to drop down where we're about to read is right after Sunday number 2. It's right after that second Sunday, there's somewhere between 10 and 20,000 new believers wrestling around Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, they're meeting from house to house. They're praying. They're breaking the bread together. They're sitting under the apostles' teaching. They're caring for one another. And as we jump down right here after Sunday number 2, there's a passage of Scripture that I think gives us some insight into who this group of people was and how it was that God used them in such an incredible way. Acts chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put it up here on the screen. Here's what it says. And when they had prayed. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Aren't you glad when God puts a Barnabas in your life? Amen? Somebody that's just an encourager. A Levite, a native of Cyprus. 
He sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. As we read that narrative from Scripture this weekend, we're right after those first two opening weeks of this new church. I can't even begin to fathom what it must have been like as some of the leaders in the early church. I mean, I know what it is a little bit, like as we've met in, uh, I think, 10 different locations in our 20 years in Las Vegas and roamed around this desert trying to adjust to space problems and crowds and things, but, but nothing that compares to the kind of numbers you read here, how they even navigated the challenges. And I mean, when 20,000 people get saved, 20,000 people, that's exciting, but 20,000 people get saved, they still got a lot of junk, right? I mean, there's a lot that hadn't been done yet. You take 20,000 new believers, put them all together. Let me guess what you got. You got some problems, right? I mean, there were some challenges. What was it about them? I think we can identify at least four things. There may be more, but I want to give you four out of this passage of scripture that are realities we learn about the early church that I believe enabled them to see a mighty move of God and hope. Here's the application for us. As we rejoice and celebrate all that God's done in the last 20 years, if we want to continue to be a people who's longing to join in a move of God that's bigger than us, I think we got to grab these four things and make sure they're in our lives, both personally and then as a body together corporately. So here's the first one. They were praying people. Notice I didn't say they were a people who prayed. They were a praying people. It's who they were. Look back at that phrase. Read this out loud. Read this phrase out. Read it out loud. Let's go. And when they had. Let's do it one more time. Let's read it out loud. And when they had. When you hear the word prayed or pray. What comes to mind? You see, for a lot of us, when we hear the word pray, we think about what we did a moment ago. And listen, we prayed together as a church, but but we think about something quiet. When Pastor Edward led us a moment ago, it's a pretty quiet moment in the room, right? Everybody's kind of praying internally. It's sort of reserved, except for Pastor Edward. When he was praying, he gets excited when he prays. But for most of us, it's kind of a quiet, somber, serious moment. We think of prayer as something that's like solitude and silence and quiet. But did you know that's not this word at all? This word that's used here is translated in the New Testament dozens and dozens of times. And most of the time, it's not translated as the word pray. You know what it's translated as? Beg. You ever heard anybody beg silently and quietly and calmly and seriously. It's a word that speaks about passionately making your need known. It's the word that's used in the gospel of Luke about a father who had a son that was possessed by a demon and this demon was literally killing his son, throwing him into a fire and trying to drown him in the water. And this father came to Jesus desperate, trying to to heal his son. He tried everything to take care of his son and nothing worked. He'd even gone to the disciples and tried to get the disciples to deal with this. And the disciples couldn't deal with it. And he came to Jesus and he, he, he begged Jesus. Can you imagine that father coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, please touch my son. No, you know what it was like, right? He wanted God's attention. 
Sometimes when we think about prayer, we think about this quiet little moment. Listen, there's nothing wrong with praying quietly. Quietly. Sometimes that's the, the culture that we're in. Sometimes that's the moment. It's a, a holy moment when we're sitting before the Lord. But when the Bible says they had prayed, this was no moment with their chairs in a circle and everyone taking turns as they held hands with candles lit. This moment was loud. It was emotional. It was desperate. They needed God. And they wanted God to know that they knew how desperate they were. They cried out to God. It was emotional. It was loud. It was passionate. It was persistent. There was a desperation for God. They knew that if God's not God, what he's called us to, we'll never be able to do. We're sunk. As you read through the rest of the book of Acts, in the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, you find these people praying 26 times. Meaning in almost every chapter of the book of Acts, you find God's people desperately crying out to him. There's a a writer who, if you want to read on the subject of prayer, my favorite author on prayer all time is a man by the name of E.M. Bounds. E.M. Bounds said this about prayer. The story of every great Christian achievement is the history of answered prayer. You know what that means? Everywhere you see God moving in power, everywhere you see God expanding his kingdom, everywhere you see God do the supernatural, here's what he inbounds says, and here's what the scripture proves. You dig deep enough, and let me tell you what you'll always find. You will always find a remnant of God's people begging God desperately in prayer. We will not see God move apart from prayer. I wish I'd have heard you shout a louder amen right there. I'm going to say it one more time to give you another shot. We will not see God move apart from prayer. Listen, we can have buildings, we can have staff, we can have campuses, we can have facilities, we can have music, we can have teaching. But listen, apart from God's people desperately grabbing a hold of the throne of God and begging God to move, we'll never see God move. Listen, that's how this church started. That's how we were born. Many of you have heard me tell the story of the little Filipino lady named Letty who prayed for a year and a half. Nobody knew it. She prayed for a year and a half before we ever got here. Begged God to move. And God called us here out of response to this sweet little lady who cried out to God for a year and a half for a church to be born. After Letty told us that story, we, we, we birthed a rally cry in our hearts that said, man, we don't pray before we work. Prayer is the work. Then God works. And it, it so inspired us that when we started our church, it was just a handful of us, but we prayer walked 50,000 households on the south end of town. We walked up and down every street and prayed over every home. We, we took the Las Vegas phone book. I know the millennials are like, phone book? What is a, what? For all the old timers in the room, we know what a phone book is, right? When we met, we go, amen. Well, when I moved here, we still use phone books. We took the Las Vegas phone book. And for those of you millennials and younger, it's a book that has the names of every person living in a city and their phone numbers listed in the book. And we prayed over every name in the phone book. And we asked God to do two things, open their hearts to the gospel. And then we asked God to raise up labors for the harvest. 
And after we did that, we went to the four corners of this city and we nailed a stake down in the four corners of this city and we claimed this city for the glory and honor of Jesus. And listen, I'm telling you, over the last 20 years, we've seen God move powerfully. But let me tell you, it's not because of anything we've done. It's because God moves in response to the prayers of his people. God's taught me a spiritual reality through the years. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. Here's what it says. God in his sovereignty has chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. Let that sink in for a minute. God in his sovereignty. Is God sovereign? Yes, he is. He's in charge. He's large and in charge. But in his sovereignty, he's chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. You say, did he have to do it that way? No, he's God. It goes with being sovereign. You can do it however you want to do it. But God in his sovereignty ordained that he was going to move in response to the cries of his people. You say, explain that. I can't. That's as good as it gets. Andrew Murray said it this way. God rules the world and his church through the prayers of his people. That God should have made the extension of his kingdom to such a large extent dependent on the faithfulness of his people in prayer is a stupendous mystery and yet an absolute certainty. God calls for intercessors. In his grace, he has made his work dependent on them. Get this. He waits for them. You know, it's one of the reasons why I believe the American church is not seeing a mighty move of God today. Do you know there's only two continents in the world where Christianity is on the decline? Europe and North America. Every other continent in the world, Christianity is exploding and growing, but those two continents, it's on the decline. The American church, with all of our resources, buildings, budgets, and orators and musicians, are losing ground every year in our own nation here in our country. Fewer people attending church every year in America than the year before. With all of our pomp and circumstance, we don't have any power. And the reason we don't have any power is we've relegated prayer to moments of transition when we move people onto and off of a stage. We don't pray to pray anymore. We just pray to change the set. That's why at Hope Church, we carve out eight to 10 minutes every week where a pastor comes and he stands here in the middle of our worship set and he leads us to pray corporately. We're begging you to lean in with us and, and cry out to God because we're desperate for God. It's why at the end of every service, we take this altar and we open it up for people to come and cry out to God because we know if we're not a praying people, we will not see God move in power. But here's what we also know. When we seek God in prayer, we experience God in power. They were praying people. Well, I'd like to spend more time there, but we need to move on, all right? <laughs> Number two, they were a united people. Look what the text says. We just read verse 31. Here's verse 32. Now the full number of those, this, this phrase full number, in some translations is translated the whole church. In other translations, the congregation. It's talking about all these believers that had come together in Jerusalem. The full number, the whole church, all the congregation of those who believed. Get this. Were of. Read it out loud. Sounds just like the church in America right now, right? One heart, one soul. It means they'd all wrapped their hearts and minds 
around something that was bigger than them. What was it? Well, we got to go back a little bit in the story to find out. Turn back one page in your Bible or two, or look up here on the screen, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to what the Bible says. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Now, what this is talking about is after Jesus' death, burial, and then resurrection, for 40 days before he ascended back to heaven, Jesus made appearances to his disciples to prove to them that he was alive. So for 40 days, Jesus began to appear to them during 40 days. He began to make appearances sometimes to one or two disciples, sometimes to as many as 500 people at one time on a hillside. But for 40 days, Jesus kept making these appearances so everybody know, hey, yes, they buried me. Yes, I was dead. But no, I'm not dead anymore. The news of my death has been greatly exaggerated. I am alive. But get this. Speaking about the what? I want you to think about this for a second. For 40 days, Jesus makes appearances to his disciples. And for 40 days, he only talked about one thing. I want you to let that sink in for a second. If you knew you were having the final conversation you were ever going to have with somebody you love. This is the last time you're ever going to speak to them. Would you just choose a flippant topic to talk about? No, if you knew it was the last time you were ever going to talk to someone, you would probably pick the thing that you thought was the most important for them to hear, right? For 40 days, Jesus' last 40 days physically on planet Earth, he makes appearances to his disciples and he only talks about one thing. You know what it is? The kingdom of God. And right after the Bible tells us this, down in verse 14 of Acts chapter 1, it says, and these all with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. There's that same language again. They had one heart. What is it? They'd wrap their hearts around the kingdom of God. Let me give you a definition for sake of time of the kingdom of God. Here's what the kingdom of God is. It's God's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. Here's what that means. God is alive and at work all over the world. God is moving in this world. God is expanding his kingdom. God is drawing people to himself. He's invited us as his people to get in on it. God is moving in the world and his kingdom is being established. And one day the last soul is going to come to know Jesus and King Jesus is going to step off the throne. He's going to descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then the new heaven and the new earth is going to come and we're going to reign with King Jesus for all eternity but you see right now this kingdom is being built and it's what Jesus told them about and they all united and they wrapped their hearts around it because they realized it was bigger than their church it was bigger than their career it was bigger than their family it was bigger than their country it was even bigger than their lives one reason the church in America is not seeing God move powerfully is because everybody's wrapped their hearts around something different. Moment of transparency. When I left for sabbatical in June, I knew that 2020 had taken a toll on me as a leader. I didn't realize how much of a toll it had taken on me as a leader. It took me several weeks just to get my head clear 
after watching our church and the church in America navigate the politics and pandemics of 2020. As I got away on sabbatical and got my head clear, one of the realizations that I came to was this reality of division of the church in America. In America, the, the church is so divided because we've, we've chosen sides politically and we've allowed our political ideology to blend with our faith. And listen, I'm not talking about one side of the aisle. I'm talking about both sides of the aisle. Both sides of the aisle politically in America have allowed their faith to be interwoven with their political ideology so that now we only see the kingdom and God's activity through the lens of our own political worldview. It's created a rift and a division in the church. It's created an American syncretism of the gospel. And if we are not careful, this American political ideology will be the undoing of the church in America. It's time that we repent and wrap our hearts around the king and his kingdom. One of the things I did on sabbatical was I took three months off social media and I didn't realize how toxic social media had become. Listen, if your social media feed is more about convincing people of your political ideology than it is advancing the kingdom agenda of our Lord, you need to check yourself. And don't bring me this lesson or this, this line that, well, I don't talk about Jesus on my social media page because I don't want to offend anybody. Listen, that train left the building. Jesus makes a profound statement about the importance of our unity in his mission. In John 13, listen to what Jesus said. By this, they're going to know. Let me tell you how the lost world is going to know that we got something better than what they have. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you argue with each other on social media about political ideology. Is that what it said? No, by your love for one another. They were united people. You see, what's happened is we've let, and I'm not saying all the stuff that we're fussing about is not important stuff. It is important stuff. It's just not the most important. Listen, in the early church, they had some political stuff going on. There was a Caesar who was burning Christians at the stake and throwing them to the lions in the Colosseum. I think they probably had something to get upset about and form a protest group with. But you don't find that in the New Testament. You know what they did? They rallied around something that was, listen, listen, there is no politician, there is no political party that is going to save America. But I'm telling you, King Jesus can Let me tell you the third thing about these people. They were a witnessing people. Let's go to the next verse, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony. This word testimony means to give a firsthand account. It's to be a witness. They were giving firsthand account to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And listen, it wasn't just the apostles because great grace was on them all. The whole church, man, everywhere they go, they're just telling people about Jesus. God was showing them all favor as they faithfully shared the good news of Jesus with other people from their own personal experience. The movement of God that has reached millions of people all over the world has not been accomplished through the oratory ability of a few paid professionals. 
but through the faithful witness of Jesus' followers sharing their own personal experience of Jesus with every person they come into contact with. And listen, everywhere you go in our city, every store, every gym, every job, every park, every ball game, everywhere you go, there are people all around you who need to hear about Jesus. 92% of this city declares on the latest census no relationship with Jesus. That means that every red light you pull up to, you look around the red light, you're probably the only Christian sitting at the red light. Every checkout line you're in at a grocery store, you're probably the only Christian in that checkout line. Every person you're transacting business with in this city, you're probably not transacting business with somebody who's a believer. It's time we as the church open our mouths and begin to tell the people around us the difference Jesus has made in our lives. And listen, we've given you a softball toss. Next weekend... I'll be preaching here next weekend, and next weekend I'm just going to share the gospel. I'm going to share the gospel next weekend as my sermon, and we're giving you an opportunity. You can pick these up as you leave today, an invite card. You just invite people to come. Tell them, man, we're celebrating our 20th birthday. It's going to be a party at our church. I'm going to share the gospel, and we're trusting God to save a bunch of them. Just grab some of these cards. Invite your friends. Pastor Edward Paz did a devotion with our staff team this week, and In that devotion, he asked a question that just gripped my heart. I hadn't been able to get away from it. Here's what he said. Here's the question. What lie of the enemy is leading me to believe that my neglecting of inviting unbelievers to church and inviting them into a relationship with Jesus Christ is okay? When's the last time? You invited a non-Christian to come to church with you. Don't tell me you don't know any. They live all around us. When's the last time you opened your mouth and told them, I don't know all the words to say, listen, that's okay. You don't have to know all the words. Trust the Holy Spirit of God to work through you opening your mouth and just telling them what you know about Jesus. And if they ask you questions you can't answer, what if they ask me about dinosaurs? What if they ask me about where where the world came? Listen, if they ask you questions you can't answer, let me give you the easiest answer you can ever give them. I don't know. (laughs) But here's what I do know. Jesus changed my life. Here's the last thing about them. They were generous people. They were praying people. They were united people. They were witnessing people. They were generous people. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, now the full number of those who believe are of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. Now skip down to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it to the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Then he gives an example of Barnabas who took a tract of land that he owned and sold it and gave it. They were a generous people. Last weekend, I talked to you about generosity, and I said that really everything in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation about us as Jesus followers living out the principle of generosity could be summarized with two statements, and here they are, always a portion and sometimes a sacrifice. 
always a portion, sometimes a sacrifice. We're always to give a portion, but what we're reading about right here in this particular passage of scripture is not the regular routine of out of the income that I have, setting aside a portion and giving that to the Lord. What we're reading about is this sometimes a sacrifice. Sometimes God calls us to a level of sacrificial generosity that is beyond what we think is even possible. What we're reading about here in this text, these people were selling land. They were selling houses. And you got to know this. This is not a prescriptive passage of scripture. This is not a passage of scripture that's saying all of us have to go sell all our land and sell all our houses and give it all away. It's a descriptive passage of scripture, giving us an example of sacrificial generosity that these people had been led to in this moment. Let me wrap up by giving you three defining statements about sacrificial generosity. Number one, it begins with a right heart towards God. We said it last weekend, giving's not about the pocket, giving's about the heart. The first thing we learn about these people is they'd all wrap their hearts around one thing. They'd wrap their hearts around the kingdom of God. And because of that, everything that they had as a possession, they saw as a possibility the opportunity of investing that and advancing the kingdom. The sad reality is in the American church, our hearts are so far from God on this issue, we think always a portion is a sacrifice. <laughs> Starts with a right heart towards God, but secondly, it flows from a right view of things. I love what the text said, that none of them saw any of the things that belonged to him as his own. Here's what that means. These people own stuff, but nobody said, hey, this is mine. Keep your hands off of it. They all had the hard attitude that it wasn't theirs, that ultimately it all belonged to God. In the New Testament, the Greek word generosity has many different word pictures associated with it, but one of my favorites in the Greek New Testament, the word for generosity is the idea of open-handed. I want everybody in the room to do something. We're going to do an exercise together. I want you to take your hands and hold them out like this. The Greek word for generosity is that I'm to hold everything I hand, everything that I have in my hands, and I'm to hold it open-handed. And it's the idea of holding it loosely. I want you to wiggle your fingers like this and just, just look at me for a second. That looks so good. I love it when we do this. This is a biblical picture of generosity right here. Now, with your hands like this, keep them right there. We're going to say three statements together, all right? I'm going to say it, and then I want you to repeat it. Here's the first statement. It all belongs to him. Say it out loud. I want you to imagine everything that you have, your bank account, your car, your career, everything. You say, wait a minute, I've worked hard for what I have. What do you mean it all belongs to him? Listen, who do you think gave you the strength and the oxygen and the breath in your body to get up and work every day to earn what you got? It all belongs to him. Say it again. It all belongs to him. Now, here's the second one. He's entrusted some to me. Say it out loud. So it all belongs to him. He's entrusted some to me. It's right here in my hands, but I'm holding it how? Like this, holding it loosely. Here's the third statement. What he's entrusted to me, I am to use for him. Say it out loud. I'm going to say them all together. Here we go. And you repeat it after me. It all belongs to him. He's entrusted some to me. What he's entrusted to me, I'm to use for him. It starts with a right heart attitude towards God, but then it flows out of a right heart attitude towards things. Listen, here's what that means. If God wants something that already belongs to him, why am I upset about that? You see, the reason I get upset is because I think it's mine. But you hear what the text said? Nobody claimed that anything that belonged to them was their own. It all belonged to him. 
So if he said sell it, he's just telling you to sell it. Listen, if I sell something that belongs to me, does that upset you? No, why? Because it don't belong to you. It belongs to me. Here's the deal. It all belongs to him. So when he in a moment leads us to live generously and sacrificially, if we have a right view of things, we respond. Here's the third statement. It's motivated by the need of the moment. The text said this sacrificial generosity was born out of a need that people have. This need is that which is necessary but lacking. Sacrificial generosity is prompted by the Holy Spirit in response to a need that's been identified. It's not an always, it's a sometimes. Probably the one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard of sacrificial generosity I heard in one of my trips to Africa. I've been to the continent of Africa about 20 times. I went 17 straight years in a row, sometimes more than once a year. And I led a conference in Southern Africa for 17 years, but had hundreds of pastors from 13 nations in Southern Africa that would come down. And I would take a few pastors from America with me and we would go and we would train these pastors and we would pour into them and they would go back to these nations and just do unbelievable kingdom work. One of the nations that we worked in was the nation of Zambia. As a matter of fact, Hope Church launched in September of 2001. In December of 2001, we took our first international overseas trip to Zambia, South Africa. I took a small group of men and we went over there first to this conference that I was leading. And then we went from Johannesburg, South Africa up to Mbala, Zambia. Now, when you read in the Bible where it says that we're to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, (laughs) that's like Mbala, Zambia. You got to get on a plane in Atlanta, fly 17 hours to to, to Johannesburg, and then three hours to Lusaka, Zambia, and then drive 15 hours north to get to Mbala, and you finally get there on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. In Zambia, I met a a pastor and a missionary by the name of Kuhn Skoltz. Many of you know that name now because Kuhn's been a partner of our church now for about 17, 18 years. We've been working together with him. at that time, Kuhn was living in, in Zambia. You talk about sacrificial generosity. Kuhn and his wife, Saria, have adopted children. They now have 19 children, most of them adopted off the streets of Zambia who had special needs. Kuhn ran a missionary organization to help nationals in Africa go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I thought we were already in the uttermost parts of the earth when I was talking to him. We're there in Mbala and we're on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. And he says there was a church there on the shores of Lake Tanganyika south of Tanzania and Zambia that had a young man who said God had called him to go to the, to the other side of Lake Tanganyika. And when I say Lake Tanganyika, don't think small little lake. It looked like the ocean. It's like Lake Tahoe, massive, huge lake. God had called him to get in a boat, go to the other side of Lake Tanganyika and boat to boat, village to village, take the gospel to Tanzanians who had never heard the gospel before. Villages that had never been even met an outsider. They approached Kuhn and said, we want to send this young man. How do we do it? He said, well, you got to get all the proper documentation. He's got to have visas, passports. They said, what's it going to cost? 600 U.S. dollars. Now, in Zambia, 600 U.S. dollars, their dollar is called the kwacha. 600 U.S. dollars is 3 million kwacha. The average weekly offering of the entire church was 12,000 kwacha or $2.25. The whole offering. When Kuhn gave him the news it was going to cost $600 or 3 million kwacha to send him, he thought that would end the conversation. Two weeks later, they contacted Kuhn and said, hey, we got the money. We're ready to send him. 
He said, wait a minute, wait, you don't understand. I didn't say 600 quach, I said 600 dollars. He said, no, we got it. He said, how did you get it? He said, well, our church got together. And we all realized we got three shirts, but we only need two. And so we took the other shirts to market and we sold them. And we're an agricultural community. We have food in our storehouses and we eat three meals a day, but we don't need three meals a day. We can live on two. So we took all the extra out of the storehouses. We went to market and we sold it. And now, there's a pastor going village to village along the shoreline of Lake Tanganyika and Tanzania. And churches have been planted and souls have been reached for the kingdom of God because this church in Lusaka or up in Nimbala, Zambia, said, we, listen, yeah, giving always a portion is good, but sometimes, sometimes, it's about a sacrifice. Next weekend, as we celebrate our 20th birthday, we've asked you to pray about giving sacrificially. What is that? Spirit-led generosity. That's very important. Don't give next weekend because we said there's an offering. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And if he doesn't speak to you, do not participate. Spirit-led generosity that occasionally calls me to give more than I think I can to get in on what God is doing in the moment. Again, when you leave this weekend, if you weren't here last weekend, we got brochures that are available that unpack for you the sacrificial generosity that we're calling for. Gives you the information about how that offering is going to be used can look at that as you leave this weekend and I want you to take it and pray over it this week but as I think about us looking back 20 years and looking forward thinking about all that God has in front of us I don't know about you but I don't want to just do church I want to be a part of a move of God here's what that means we're going to have to be a praying people a united people witnessing people generous people. Let's pray together. God, in the name of Jesus, I pray right now that as only you can, you would take the truth of your word and bring conviction. God, that you would speak boldly, powerfully. Maybe you're here right now and as believers all over the room are praying and I pray that you're praying in response to what you've heard. Wherever the Holy Spirit of God's convicted you. As believers are praying, maybe you're here in this room tonight and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Listen, everything that I've talked about tonight to the church is because we want people just like you to know that there is a God in heaven who made you and he loves you. And the Bible tells us that we've all sinned against God and our sin keeps us from a relationship with God. But... This Bible also tells us that God loved us so much that he didn't leave us in our sin. He sent his son Jesus into the world to die on a cross for our sin and to rise again from the dead so that you and I could be forgiven. If you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with Jesus in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing another song of worship. We're going to open this altar up. I pray that some of you believers come and get in this altar and you begin to beg God for some of these things in our church. But if you're not a Christian, you can come to one of these pastors. And just say to them, man, I need to talk to somebody about how I can know Jesus. 
We'll have somebody sit down with you and show you from the Bible how you can begin a relationship with God. You can leave here tonight knowing that you know God, knowing that you're his child, knowing that your life has meaning, purpose, and value, and knowing that you're going to heaven someday when you die. For others of you that want to pray with a pastor, our pastors are going to be here. We'd be honored to pray with you and for you. You can come with one of those burdens that Ed talked about earlier, Pastor Edward. And man, we'd be honored to pray with you about something in your job, your health, your family, a relationship, whatever it is, you can just come. This altar is going to be open. God, we pray right now that you'd move in power. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray.